I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, episode 320. Adventures in Rokugan takes the classic world of Legend of the Five Rings and brings it to 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. Here at Strange Assembly, we have a, a long history with Legend of the Five Rings. We started as just an L5R podcast, and I have been playing Dungeons and Dragons since, you know, middle school. So I have a lot of investment in both the concept of L5R and the concept of D&D. We're doing two things about Adventures in Rokugan. One of them is for new players coming to Rokugan from D&D, basically. This isn't that. This is a review for enfranchised Legends of the Five Rings players. So this is going to assume that you are familiar with Legend of the Five Rings and the world of Rokugan, and there's going to be a lot of a lot more compare and contrast than there might normally be in a review. For me, as an enfranchised player, right, the, the big bottom line is whether Adventures in Rokugan is more a Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game that happens to use 5e mechanics, or a D&D game that uses the Legend of the Five Rings setting. That doesn't mean that there's a bad or good answer to this, but I do think the answer is important. And to me, the answer is that this is more like a D&D game that uses the Legend of the Five Rings setting. And to be clear, that doesn't mean it's the same as playing D&D in the Forgotten Realms. It matters that the game is set in Rokugan. But the characters in Adventures in Rokugan are fundamentally a fairly straightforward group of adventurers out to mostly fight the good fight. And the book Adventures in Rokugan does use the term adventurers, and I think that says something. Right? Adventurers is not a term you would see applied to the player characters in prior editions of Legend of the Five Rings role-playing. And I think that it matters also because the game here no longer really worries about how it is that all these different types of people ended up working together. In general, the insular nature of the great clans in Adventures of Rokugan is not a big deal like it is in prior versions of Legend of the Five Rings. This is, I think, more of a change in theory than it is in practice. The L5R RPG has always fought against this element of the setting. It's why we're all working for an Emerald Magistrate is such a trope. It was one of the few ways to have a multi-clan group of characters truly work well with the setting, and players almost always wanted to play a multi-clan group of characters. Really, this element of the setting was more often just hand-waved away, and so I think it makes sense to downplay and remove that. But going on, so first, is Rokugan itself different in Adventures in Rokugan? And yes, yes it is. Adventures in Rokugan is set in something that resembles the calm before the second day of thunder. It's 1123, I think that's five years before the second day of thunder. I don't know if they're planning on having the second day of thunder be a thing, but that's where you are in the timeline. The baseline world that I'm going to compare off of is the fantasy flight version of Rokugan. So that's my sort of default starting point here. Now, in this Rokugan, all the great clans are here. All the minor clans are here, too. There might even be a couple of extras. There's a perfect land sect. There's an elemental imbalance. There's controversy over Yuji name magic. 
the world maps here are the world maps from the Fantasy Flight Rokugan. And if you just looked at the humans of Rokugan, there wouldn't be that big a difference. But what is really different is non-Rokugani humans and how Rokugan feels about people other than Rokugani humans. There is baked into Adventures in Rokugan a much more developed world outside Rokugan than is talked about a lot more than it typically was in prior iterations of L5R. There are sections right here in the core book about the Ivory Kingdoms, about the Camarist Caliphate, about the Ujik Nomads, and they're all adjusted to greater or lesser extent from what they used to be. In addition, there's material on Yunfeng Guao, a Chinese-inspired nation that sits directly north of the Dragon Mountains, and is so integrated with the setting that Tagashi and Fu Lang are actually the children of Lady Sun and a young Fengual deity, so they are only actually half-siblings to the rest of the kami. The Asawa come from Sebyuksan, a Korean-inspired land also just north of Rokugan, so the Yobijin are just gone. There are no Senpit, there are no Yodatai, and all of the European-inspired nations have been replaced. This may or may not have something to do with how to the rights to that part of the setting are tied up with 7th Sea ownership and licensing. So the Battle of White Stag still happens, but the traders were from places like the Miantu Alliance, Asturium, and the Visentari Kingdom. The Battle of White Stag also didn't have quite the same impact on the setting as the xenophobia of Rokugan is turned way, way down. There are multiple non-human character creation options, there are mechanical backgrounds for bunches of non-Rokugani humans, and not just, you know, one per country either. These folks are presumably still uncommon, but they are not hated and feared. Although most of the non-human options do have magical ways to appear human, even the Naga can go poof and look human now. Note that this also extends to the Unicorn. There is that lingering issue with the name magic, but that's really it. There is no, oh, the unicorn are still distrusted because of their gaijin ways. The word gaijin is not going to appear in here, by the way. So that's the general setting. How about character creation options? So since you are an existing Legend of the Five Rings player, you're presumably used to character creation involving the choice of clan and family and school. If this was more of a 5e implementation of L5R, then they might have gone with doing clan, family, school as race background class. But that isn't how it went. Human is a species option. Note that I, in my writing, I tend to use species instead of race, even when talking about standard Dungeons and Dragons. But this isn't just my personal word choice here. The book calls them species, not races. There are a variety of non-human species options as well. The non-human species options include some obvious ones and some new ones. Naga are around, Nizumi are around, of course. Tengu are an option, and they are now more just bird people than something exotic, right? They're not all celestial messengers from the heavens or whatever mystical significance they were supposed to have. They're also more broadly bird folk rather than raven folk. The new options include Spectres and Mizoku and Animal Yokai. Mizoku are the demon-like servants of the Fortune of Death. They can take on human form and wander Rokugan for unspecified purposes, 
although that form has some sign of their demonic nature. Um, they seem to me to be pretty clearly an effort to capitalize on the popularity of tieflings. I'm kind of surprised that the primary illustration of a Mizoku isn't, you know, some blue girl. Specters are the lingering spirits of the dead who are, for the most part, indistinguishable from the living unless they want to be noticed. There's the animal yokai as well. Not that those weren't around the setting before, but I think that being an actual Katsuni or an actual Komori was something that was just not really on the radar for player characters. Notably, although these non-humans are fully mechanically supported, including with backgrounds, the setting isn't really altered to integrate them. So, sure, I guess there are villages of Tengu out there somewhere, but it's not like they're a clan with a larger role in the Empire. There's no big religious question about why there are demons and the spirits of the dead wandering the earth in human form. They're just there. So in mechanical terms, families are backgrounds, which means they grant proficiency in a couple of skills, one weapon, usually but not always the wakazashi, and a couple of extras, proficiency with a toolkit, proficiency with languages, whatever. Background affects some general character knowledge, so all Crane family backgrounds know more about politics. But for the most part, this is it for what clan and family do in a mandatory mechanical sense. Everything about making a character feel like a samurai of a specific clan is optional. The book does have suggestions, what classes to take to make a certain kind of character, what feats, what invocations, that sort of thing. But none of it's locked off. No feat, no class, no invocation, no technique is formally limited to those from a particular clan or family, although some are close, like the Tagashi order, or the, the big one, and feats can be easier to access for a particular clan. There is quite the long list of backgrounds. All of the great clans get one per family, even the Kaito. There are multiple options for the imperial families. Every minor clan has at least one. Every foreign nation or people has at least two. So you might be from, for example, a specific city in the Ivory Kingdoms. There are also generic backgrounds like rural or urban. And every non-human species has at least one background as well. Background means a lot more from a story perspective than it usually does in Dungeons & Dragons, but it's not that much more of a mechanical impact. Classes are, are very generic compared to the usual L5R schools. Except for the Tagashi, nothing is tied to a particular flavor or a particular location in the setting. So the options are Bushi, Duelist, Courtier, Shinobi, Ritualist, Pilgrim, and Acolyte. Like I said, there's this one outlier. The Acolyte is mostly just the Takashi. It's also the way you'd make a character who has shadow brands. Right? Those are the two subclasses of Acolytes. So if you are an Acolyte, you have to be one of those things. Acolytes gain and spend inspiration a lot, and the Takashi, unsurprisingly, get to choose from a list of major and minor tattoos. Pilgrims, on the other hand, are where the Brotherhood of Shinsei monks would fall. They get extra uses for hit dice and track their yin-yang balance while using externalizations, basically spell effects. Pilgrims can walk the path of redemption, the path of harmony, or the path of justice, each of which has a particular sort of yin-yang alignment. 
the Pilgrim's reliance on spending hit dice to activate their abilities seems like a weakness in general, and a possible problem in a setting that is not exactly loaded with healing spells. So the baseline healing invocation just lets you spend your hit dice without needing to rest. So Bushi and Duelists are both straight-up warriors, although Duelists are a little better at one-on-one, including duels, and Bushi are better against groups, including having more hit points. Pretty much any character from what was a Bushi school before is going to be primary in one of these, although a lot of the recommendations include multi-classing into something else as well. Both Bushi and Duelist use focus points, they have martial techniques, which are chosen off of a list, and they have combat stances, which do carry over some flavor from the FFG L5R RPG. Uh, the default Bushi martial technique makes the character harder to hit and reduces incoming damage, while the default duelist technique increases outgoing damage. Bushi can gain more focus points, while duelists can try to drag spe- specified enemies into duels. Like everything D&D, these classes have archetypes. Bushi have three. They can be protectors, who go heavy defense and are the only class that will give you true heavy armor proficiency. They can go on offense, be vanguards, which can actually let you get another extra attack. Or they can go in the middle and be a samurai arms master, which has flexible bonuses. You know, a little bit more armor proficiency, more skill proficiency, better on armed strikes. Duelists can be Blade Masters, which is where your Kakita are going to fall, Adepts, which is where your Miramoto are going to fall, or just, you know, anybody who wants more flexibility. Uh, and then there are Death Dancers, which are basically the Bayushi, or anybody who wants to be all intimidating with their dueling. There are also Ritualists, that's what Shugenja are now called. The ritualists do not use spells in a traditional D&D sense, nor do they use rituals, as that term is used in Dungeons & Dragons. Instead, they know a certain number of invocations and use favor points to use those invocations. Ritualists are pretty limited in what they can do with invocations. They get very little favor, and the lion's share of invocations cost favor. The class is only saved from possible mechanical irrelevance because there are a couple of zero-cost damage-dealing invocations. I anticipate Shugenja doing a lot of Calling of Cinders. I'm sorry. I anticipate Ritualists doing a lot of Calling of Cinders. Mechanically, I kind of picture them like 5e Warlocks. Sure, you've got other stuff, but it's the ability to Eldritch Blast every single turn that's the class mainstay. If you want to stay true to traditional L5R elemental foci, then some clans are pretty hosed because Ritualists don't really have anything good to do in combat other than use their invocations. There are three Ritualist archetypes, Artisans, Elementalists, and Mediums. The non-Artisans are pretty straightforward. The Artisan archetype is pretty complicated. It's like a half dozen different things in one, because if you want to do Alchemy, this is where you are. If you're doing Charms, you're here. Illusions, you're here. Wards, you're here. And other stuff. A big thing for the Artisan is that they can awaken items. Staying true to L5R, this is not a setting where you just walk around and find random magic items. Instead, by performing particular feats with weapons and other items, the item has the possibility of awakening. So 
If you are able to use your weapon to land a killing blow on a particularly nasty opponent, maybe that's going to put the spirit within your sword in a position that it can be awakened. This really isn't something that you should need a player character to do, though, and I would be pretty irritated with the GM who punished players for their not being an artist in the group. Overall, however, ritualists are kind of weak. They at least have something to do every round, but it's not like they've got this sort of good high-end power like 5e spellcasters do. Courtiers have a problem. The mechanics of 5th edition are very combat-focused. Characters who aren't combat-capable just don't work very well. So even courtiers need to be functional in combat. This shouldn't be a problem. 5e products have made all sorts of concepts combat-capable. But the courtier class is woefully underpowered. Every class in D&D 5e needs something that they can do in combat every round. The ritualist gets there, right? Because they have that, I think of as a cantrip invocation. But courtiers don't. They have simple weapon proficiency, they have terrible armor, and they have no every round ability to do anything else. All of their abilities require using intrigue dice, and they don't get many per day. Your best action is probably to hang back, shoot with a crummy ranged weapon, and use one of their abilities to increase the damage that someone else will do if they hit that same enemy. The courtier archetypes are the diplomat and the investigator. They're pretty self-explanatory. Uh, there's also a shinobi class. This is for anyone who wants to do any sort of sneaky sneaky, whether that's a ninja or a scout. The archetypes include infiltrator and saboteur. I would think of the saboteur as a default while the Infiltrator focuses on social sneaking. Those who want to play someone sneaky who is not actually a ninja or a Daidoji Harrier are probably going to find themselves wishing there was some more generic archetype. From a mechanical perspective, there is a common theme amongst some of these classes of tying too much of the power of the class into a resource and then giving the character very little of that resource and no meaningful way to get it back except for a long rest. The Pilgrim, Ritualist, and Courtier all suffer from this. The, the Pilgrim less so. Note that the Bushi and the Duelist use focused points, but they generate them all the time in combat, so that's not an issue. I think this is probably the biggest impediment to introducing new players to L5R using Adventures in Rokugan. It's hard to see that many folks who know 5e mechanics being drawn to these really important character archetypes like Courtier and Ritualist when the mechanics for them seem so weak. So that's, that's the mechanical stuff here. There's also well, let's call sensitivity reading. I ultimately don't think that this is that big a deal, but I know that I've seen a lot of people asking about this or commenting on this, so let's just go through it. Yes, Adventures in Rokugan used sensitivity readers, and yes, they were fairly aggressive. For the most part, this is word substitution. Like I mentioned before, race has been replaced with species. The Code of Bushido is now the Code of, of Akoto. The word Gaijin isn't around, that sort of thing. There's also a general elimination of Japanese or other Asian language terms other than names, 
which you may have noticed above, right? There are no Shigenja. The Naga collective unconsciousness is not the Akasha, that sort of thing. The very basics, like samurai and ninjutsu, are still around. I think that is in no small part to help new player readability, but some of these I know has got some let's avoid real world cultural terms elements. The word replacement does produce a few rough spots. There are prominent references to chivalry, which reads oddly, because chivalry is basically a Western European analog to Bushido. The notion of chivalry is out of place, and it is less accurate to the values that are described in the book, including that chivalry builds in these gender stereotypes and roles that are explicitly rejected in Adventures in Rokugan. The removal of the word honor also makes the use of chivalry even stranger, because the concept of honor is central to the concept of chivalry. Also, because the word honor has been excised from the game, there's this awkward phrase that devotion is stronger than steel. More substantive changes are the removal of the Rokugani version of the Japanese feudal caste system and references to or glorification of ritual suicide. The removal of the caste system seems to be a particularly good idea to me. It's not that you couldn't make a game that employed that concept and then made players grapple with the gross injustice of the system, but Legend of the Five Rings never really did that. Adventures in Rokugan still has a social hierarchy with various ranks of samurai and then commoners below them, but the non-samurai are just merchants or peasants or whatever. Right? There is a reason why you don't see standard European-inspired fantasy games getting into the details of serfdom or the like. It just doesn't add anything to the game to infuse the characters with a participation in such an abomination of a system, and then just not address it. I personally am glad to see this sort of detail go. So, final thoughts. I said at the start of this that Adventures of Rokugan is more D&D in Rokugan than it is L5R with 5e mechanics. Part of this is that what isn't present in the book is much about culture. There's a history and there's basic gazetteer information, but there isn't much cultural presentation. And I think that's telling because that sort of thing was part of what made L5R be L5R. Sure, there was plenty of combat, but I always thought of that combat as one of the three pillars of L5R along with courts and investigation. Of course, 5e isn't as mechanically built for those things anyway, but without the social backdrop for those interactions, it's hard to see how a new player would pick up adventures in Rokugan and incorporate that kind of social content into the game. Sure, if you've got all that in your head from existing L5R experience, then you can try to import it. But I think it's telling that it isn't there in the book. I think it's telling that Adventures in Rokugan adapts Mask of the Oni as an introductory adventure. This was an adventure that is all just about going into the Shadowlands and fighting. And the adaptation excises some of the small amounts of interaction with the Crab Clan that takes place before entering the Shadowlands. I also think that enfranchised L5R players will be frustrated by the difficulty in distinguishing characters from each other. I imagine that some players will want to make things more restrictive, like 
strictly limiting the clan feats to those clans. But there is just no way to do that without rebuilding the classes or players choosing to hamper themselves by limiting what parts their characters will use. The Ritualist in particular suffers from this, because if you aren't willing to throw fire damage around, then it joins the courtier in not really having anything good to do every round in combat. Edge could have kept more of a hybrid D&D L5R feel by doing something like making clans into races, or having a lot more archetypes in the classes. Maybe the former would have been hard, especially given the current 5e design paradigm of making it easier for different races to be whatever they want, instead of being strongly pushed into certain classes by ability modifiers. But, other than page count, I'm not sure why Edge couldn't have expanded on the class archetypes to get some more distinctive options in there. Now, being something like Dungeons & Dragons in Rokugan isn't a bad thing. It's just different. As I mentioned before, it does matter that the game is in Rokugan. The different classes matter. The backgrounds matter. The world building is there. Getting more gold and magic items just is not a thing that people go adventuring for, for the most part. But it does mean that if you're an enfranchised player, and your goal is to play Legend of the Five Rings role-playing, then there isn't a lot of draw to adventures in Rokugan unless you are specifically looking for 5e mechanics. But that is a significant unless. The popularity of 5e is why this book exists at all, right? I know that the differences focus of, of what I've been talking about here might make this review sound negative, so I want to be very clear. I am glad that this book was made. I am glad that Rokugan is being brought to the wider 5e audience. This is not just L5R with D&D 5e mechanics, but it is still a good product to have out there. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there on the Apple Podcasts app, on Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcatching service is. We should be there. If we are not, please contact me. I'm chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear your thoughts, comments, feedback, constructive criticism, that sort of thing. You can also find us on the usual social media. We are at Facebook on Strange Assembly and Instagram, and we're Strange Assembly on Twitter. The YouTube channel is Strange Assembly. You may have noticed a pattern here. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson. This is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.